Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Uh, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Heaton Shah. Uh, Heaton, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, Heaton, you are a longtime successful uh, entrepreneur, investor. I have to, also, I have to say, one of the biggest uh, mentors in Silicon Valley. I remember uh, when uh, we had a nice sat down when I was very early on in, in, in product hunt before, before it was meaningful. And you're known as someone who uh, is willing to spend the time and, and take uh, take chances on people before, before it's obvious. And I just want to say that before we got into it because it's it's appreciated and I hope that uh, others follow your example. I appreciate that sentiment. I think uh, one of the most memorable meetings was the one with you where it just uh, we're not going to talk about what we talked about because uh, that was a long time ago and like things have passed and you're much older and so am I at this point. But like it was one of the most insightful conversations I had in terms of being able to process what you were going through and kind of mirror it back. So I would say that like to start this off like I'm just a mirror. Yeah. I tend to be a good one. That's what people say. That's all I can do. Yeah. I think that's all any of us can do when we're helping other people. Totally. So, uh, and you've also been enormously helpful in the on deck community for people who are looking to uh, start or join their next company. And and you meet with a lot of entrepreneurs in transition. And I'm curious uh, w- how you think about frameworks for picking startup ideas. A lot of people, you know, because more and more today, uh, people are willing to take to take the risk, leave their job, not necessarily know who their co founder is, not necessarily know what the right idea is. They might say, hey, I'm looking at this market, I'm looking at this market. How are you sort of advising startups on, on, on startup ideas? I used to spend a lot of time with people starting new businesses. And that was at a time when I think, you know, the world was very different. There wasn't as many of these podcasts. There wasn't as much content out there. This was pre like even like startup school from Y Combinator where those videos, even though they're aged now a little bit, they're so good. Like if you were to ask me, like, can you like, where do I need to learn? I'm like, well, one, you should talk to people fine. But really, like everything's online, right? Like nothing, nothing I've said, nothing I can say to you, you can't read about. Whether it, whether you know my presentation of it to you or my thinking with you helps. Like there's nothing that's not out there. Yeah. So I've actually spent a lot less time in the last couple of years with people starting new companies. Um, part of the reason is also because I think that so many things in terms of like when you think about this, it's like it's almost like you know that saying about like you know. The, the, the rising tide, you know, raises all ships, boats, whatever. The rising tide here is the fact that knowledge of how to start things is out there. So the first thing I'll say is you have no excuse. You have no excuse to say, hey, I don't know how to do this or I can't yeah. do this, even if you don't know anybody. Yeah. And that wasn't the case when I started on the Internet in 2003. It wasn't the case when I started my first SaaS company in 2005. And it definitely wasn't the case even like five years ago. Right. It wasn't the case where like you without talking to anyone, you could figure out how to build your own business, whether it's self-funded, some call it bootstrapped or you want to go after venture funding. The knowledge is out there. The information's out there. And there's a lot that's changed in terms of our ability to go find it. And the evidence there is, in, is twofold. One, there's more startups than ever. Like there's yeah. like tens of thousands every year is kind of the last metric I heard. Yeah. Someone said 20,000. Someone else said 40,000. I have no clue anymore. Yeah. And that wasn't the case and hasn't been the case when I was more actively helping on a regular basis. There's a lot of people you can learn from and a lot of yeah. things you can learn without talking to anyone like in person or anything like that or even on a video call. 
And in terms of evaluating ideas, like my, my whole point here is like, I myself on, on the things that I'm working on, I believe I have to spend so much more energy to make them work than ever because there's so much more out there, period. There's more options for uh, anyone who's trying to buy a B2B product. There's more options for any, any, anyone in your kind of private life uh, as a consumer in terms of the sort of choices you have on the products you can use to entertain yourself or talk to your yeah. friends or whatever. So in a world of plenty, what do you do? I don't have an answer on how to evaluate a startup idea anymore. If you ask me back in the day, it's like uh, there's some obvious things, right? Like uh, the, the, you know, the Y Combinator uh, mantra of like build something people want. Yeah. I think today I would say build something people want to buy. Like, you know, I'd add that on. I've been saying that for a while. Yeah. Um, even if you're building a consumer business, you're still building something someone wants to buy at some point. They want to buy something from you. They want to buy ads from you. Well, if they want to buy ads from you, you better have a product that has, you know, the right sort of um, system or the right experience so that people are using it often enough so that you can actually monetize that experience. Yeah. If you're building a B2B product, like you actually don't have true product market fit unless someone gives you some, some amount of money yeah. for what you're doing, right? So you cross the penny gap. So all, you know, it, it, when you look at it like that, I don't think it's as much about what's the idea. And I think it's more about how does that person think about getting to what I call a, the race to the spreadsheet. And the race to the spreadsheet is this idea that you're able to figure out what is the path for the business or the type of business I want to work on. Uh, what's the path to getting to a spreadsheet where the numbers are the actuals in the business. Yeah. And that could be usage. It could be retention. It could be whatever you want. You could, you could say it's like, Oh, getting, getting to the right metrics and amplitude. I don't care. Right. But it's right. like, there's an experience that's out there for the customers that you have that you want to create based on the business you're in. Yeah. You should be figuring those kind of things out. Now, if you want me to be super prescriptive about evaluating ideas, I think it's really the eye of the beholder and the person who's creating them. And so the thing I would say is like the thing that I'm not seeing enough conversation about and enough knowledge about online, probably at all, is this idea that I call, what are the conditions for success for what you're getting into? And because of all this knowledge online, you should know. I mean, I just mentioned one. You're building a consumer product. It's ad-based monetization. You better have pretty regular daily usage and high time on app, time in, time in app, time on site, whatever. And I'm sorry if someone feels like, hey, that's bad for the world. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you building a business yeah. and what is going to be required for that business to be successful at any kind of scale, right? Yeah. Uh, so to me, I like to identify what are the condi conditions for success for whatever I'm doing, uh, what I want to get into, whether it's a B2B business or a consumer business or a marketplace yeah. or a hardware business or whatever. And am I ready to go after it? Can I define what these things are? And how do I systematically figure out what the business is here? Walk us through how you did that with, with FYI in, in your own development, in your own journey of, did, did, you know, you, you consider consider experimenting with different ideas. What was your sort of navigating of the idea maze and the market to determine this is the, the best opportunity, the best opportunity for you? I think everyone has a specific skew. I used to call it, uh, and I'm not sure where you fit in uh, on this skew, so it's, it's an interesting thing, but it's like a spectrum, it's on a skew. It's like either you're a pirate or explorer, and there's a spectrum there. And I tend to now try to figure out how to be both at the same time uh, and have different lenses or hire people that, that are different than me. And so in general, my perspective has always been be an explorer. And as an explorer, you're actually looking to find unique opportunity, unique 
like a new land, like Columbus style, so to speak. Or he accidentally found the new land trying to find existing land or find another path to existing land, but there's still some yeah. discovery there. While if you're a pirate, you tend to want to start by seeing what someone else is doing or some other company is doing or some market opportunity that exists in, yeah. in an existing market and go after it. So when it came to FYI, my co-founder and I tend to go for something new and unique and we knew that about ourselves. So we created the processes to do that by starting from what many would call first principles around what's the problem here? What are pro what's the problem we're solving? And we, we failed a couple of times, but at the end of the day, like the conditions that were always the same and didn't change across the businesses as we stepped back and thought about it and like, well, we want to build a, fr a free, free to paid product. So a freemium business, we want to build one that we can charge per, per employee per month or per user per month. And we want to build a business that can spread within a company and in between companies. That was, those are, those are our criteria. And why did you pick those as principles? Two reasons. One, ultimately in the long run, you want a business that has the most, we wanted a business that has the most potential to spread word of mouth. And when you have a free plan that free businesses, any kind that you, people don't have to pay for tend to spread faster, especially if like, obviously they have product market fit and things like that. But so that's a big criteria for us. The fastest growing SaaS companies tend to have free as a big component to their business. Uh, once they figure out free. So this is not the case early on, actually other like free trial businesses, demo based enterprise sales, all that actually tend to go much faster early, but in the long run, you end up hitting these bottlenecks around customer acquisition costs and ability to scale uh, uh, the number of people signing up for your product and things like that, unless you have a free plan. Uh, and then if that free plan also has built in sort of virality and uh, ability for people to refer each other to the product and as more people use the product, it gets better over time for every individual that's using it. I mean, those are really powerful drivers for a sort of long-term massive B2B business. Yeah. And the other part of it, back to the, like know thyself type of thing, we know that that's rare, <laughs> right? So you're going after something challenging. And so that criteria is what we basically kept iterating what we were building and what we were doing until we got to that. Got to a point where we feel really good about the current business with FYI and, the, and what we're building in the future to be able to hit sort of that criteria. Yeah, and give just for the audience that may not be familiar, give maybe the 30 second of FYI. Yeah, so today, FYI, um, the homepage says, well, it might not by the time this is out, but it says uh, find your documents in three clicks or less. And what we're doing next with it is basically adding uh, the ability for teams to collaborate. And this is a product that connects to all the different apps you use at work and helps you essentially find information. And long term, that's what it will be. And there's lots of different lenses on how that kind of gets uh, realized. And so we've spent um, the last about year and a half focusing on how do we build a product that an individual personally and in a company wants to use on a daily basis yeah. personally without even having any of their team members in the product? Because we feel like that's almost like the uh, atomic unit of engagement inside of, a, inside of a business or even in life around productivity tools, which is I can personally use it. And so we've spent the time doing that. And we've also discovered what the opportunities are around all those criteria I mentioned in the process. Talk about how it's different, the ways in which it's different building an enterprise company today in 2020 that, than it was, you know, almost a decade ago in, when you were building Kismetrics. I think it's easier than ever to go reach an enterprise customer and talk to them. And that's amazing. Like the amount of like companies that I've seen over the last, you know, 10 plus years, 15 years, like be able to reach enterprise customers, yeah. actually get their money is incredible. 
And I think a lot of that has to do with freemium, free trials, employees at large companies being able to pick something up and just start using it. Uh, and that that is definitely a new thing. So ability to reach those customers is like, I think 10 to 100x easier. That also means more people going after it, which is all good. Um, and we have so much knowledge about how to do outbound emailing, outbound sales, and, and all kinds of like tools and tricks and stuff like that for it. Uh, so that's, I think, a, a big deal. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about things like consumerization of enterprise and there's all these like buzzwords around it. But ultimately, what the, the simplest way to think about it is if people are using really well-designed, really usable products um, at home, even like things like the, the you know, Internet of Things or whatever home products we have, whether it's a Fitbit or an Alexa, they're super easy to use, super easy to set up. I mean, I just switched my MacBook. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like one wire. I didn't do it through Wi-Fi because the, the article said don't do it through Wi-Fi. And it was a completely night and day than the last time I did it, which was three years ago. I was up and running with this new computer with everything I had on the old one, which is like, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of information on the new one perfectly in 20 minutes. Same with the phone. You just put them next to each other and some magic happens. You're like, what is this iCloud and all that thing? You don't even care anymore. Last time I did that, like a few years ago, um, I just got a new phone. I got a new laptop. But like last time I did that a few years ago, it was not like that. Yeah. And at work, you look at like, sure, like if you're a smaller business, a startup and all that, you're using the newer stuff. You're using Notion, Airtable, um, you know, uh, Figma, et cetera. And you might feel, even though like some of those have clunky experiences here and there, you might feel that like same as close to consumer as possible. While the folks who are in larger companies are still using things that were built in 05, 06, 07, 08, even 2010. And they're just not the same. And so there's a ton of opportunity there where it's like the mindset that people have and the psychology they have when they're at home and the products they're using and how easy they are to set up, how easy they are to use. We don't have that at work yet. And so I think there's tremendous opportunity to build more, more things for work that just, you know, reduce time spent in the tool, reduce, uh, increase productivity, reduce the amount of switching between apps and things like that. Or even like the amount of, you know, like, like, like on a, on a slight tangent on that, like the amount of interconnectivity between apps is also incredible thanks to Zapier and IFTTT and things like that. So I would say that the expectations we have of the products we use as consumers are barely getting to the enterprise. And that's that's a huge another huge like wave opportunity, whatever. Yeah. It seems that all the the founders who were building consumer apps and companies, you know, five, ten years ago are now building future work companies or, or, yeah. or consumerized B2B companies. So it seems like, yeah. Um Let's get into that a little bit. You, you've been angel investing a long time, but let's say you were fully focused on a fund uh, focused on future of work. What might your investment thesis or request for startups or where might you you focus or or say, hey, here's the white space, here, here's opportunity? I always think product first and I have a product mindset. My first step would be like, what the heck is future of work? Aren't we always in the future of work? So first, it's the nomenclature and the terminology. So I'm assuming you're assuming like it would be like a seed fund or early stage fund. Yep. So I'm just going to be super prescriptive. Yeah, First thing I'd actually do is go talk to all the later stage funds and figure out how they think about it. Yeah. So for example, Sequoia has been known to like do a lot of analysis of markets. Yeah. I'd want to know how they think about future of work. Yeah. I'm upstream. Yeah. I'm safe. I, they might do seed rounds, but like I'm still upstream to them, right? So I'd go talk to the Sequoias of the world, et cetera. Anyone that's putting out future of work thesis and like just document everything I learned from them because... I don't think anyone knows what the future of work is. Right. And the people who are investing are the ones that are actually greatest at risk of missing out on it. Yeah. So I'd start there and just get their whole vantage point. 
So that's one side of it. I think the other side of it would be like, what are actually the real problems people have at work that they need solved? And what's changing about work that's causing these problems to, to sort of exist? And, you know, I have my own vantage point on that based on the product I'm building that connects to all the apps that you use at work. Um, that being said, like as an investor, you know, some people talk about how your jobs to predict the future. Other folks talk about how your, your jobs to understand the present, right? There's all kinds of theories, right? Everyone's got their whole thing. Yeah. Every investor you talk to, literally, they're all unicorns and unique and like, I shit you not, that's the truth. And that's cool, right? Um, that's part of the fun of, of, of being a founder and talking to these investors. But as an investor, it's like, define what the heck this is. Yeah. Uh, not just like market maps and stuff, but like come up with some kind of thesis where you're able to say, okay, this is where we're at today. Yeah. And I, I really do believe more in the ideology of an investor's job is not to predict the future. Right. An investor's job is to understand the present. Yeah. Um, and so I would try to figure out what's going on now. Um, I, I think future work is actually bullshit yeah. um, because we're always in the future of work and things are changing more than ever, faster than ever, even inside of enterprise. Totally. And so I think it's funny that a lot of investors have that thesis. I'm wondering for how long they had it, right? right? And is it a bubble around that terminology or is there really something there? Mm -hmm. So what is it? And the other thing is when you think about future of work, there's actually two very distinct categories. One is employment. And yeah. everything around that, from freelancing to remote work to all those things. And the second piece is actually productivity. Those are the only two categories I've found that exist. So are we really talking about the future of work? Or are we talking about new ways of working? Yeah. And are we talking about just evolution of productivity, right. right? And how we think about productivity today because a bunch of stuff has changed. So, you know, like to me, it's a research project, right? First, and that's what I would do. Yeah. And I'd really focus on the upstream because... As a early stage investor, your ability to have conviction on founders and how they think about the world is probably more important yeah. than anything else. And so this will help you inform that and see directionally like who's got it right when you can think of like, okay, these folks who are like doing later stage investments, how do they think about these things? Um, these folks who are actually another angle would be like the folks that are actually working at companies that are buyers of future of work, yeah. whatever that is. Um, how do they think about it? Uh, and then, you know, it, it's really just like, what is your special secret sauce or special angle on how you add value? And for, for let's say productivity, for example, uh, is there a, have you made investments there or what opportunities are, are you excited about? Is there an opportunity for like a superhuman for a calendar? Is there like, you know, OS, you know, and FY is doing something here. Uh, but how, how do you think about productivity? On the most basic level, it's figuring out where people are wasting their time and just going after that. So I think a really good example from a personal investment standpoint is I was an early investor in Front. Yeah. And this idea of a shared inbox just made sense because people were wasting time trying to figure out how to manage these mailing lists like press at, support at, and this inbound email that was coming in and you, there's this pattern of like multiple people working on it and it wasn't easy. Yeah. And Front makes that easy. And honestly, until they came around and even until years later, there weren't really any competitors around it because it was like this idea everyone was confused by and didn't understand. But yeah. at the end of the day, it was very logical, right? It was very obvious in some ways of like, oh, there's a shared inboxes that exist in almost every organization on the planet. And they either get sent out to multiple people and then 
all of a sudden you lose track of it. And then all your kind of communications with the outside world end up getting a little messed up because nobody knows who responded, who didn't, et cetera. And they're using all these hacky ways to do it. And then all of a sudden there's a productivity hit in your company. So you're really looking for opportunities when it comes to productivity on how can we make people's lives better by like saving them time, yeah. right? It's not about money. It's about time. And time is actually, you know, the, the number one cost in most companies is headcount. And that's really about time when it comes to productivity. So I think Front's a really good example of, of, of seeing the present state of things and knowing that there's an opportunity with that business um, going forward. You know, I see you as, as being one of the pioneers and re- really being there even before sort of growth hacking took off as, as a term, well before. Um, how have you seen sort of, you know, that was, I don't know, 2009, 2007, I don't know when it was. Growth, how have you seen sort of growth and go-to-market sort of evolve into how, especially for enterprise businesses, how people are thinking about that in 2019, 2020, and how would they ever think about it in 2008? I think it goes back to that idea of like plenty. Yeah. Like the more there is, the more the more we need to wrap our heads around things and figure things out. Yeah. Uh, so back then, like historically in software specifically, I my first software product that worked is called Crazy Egg. It was launched in 05. It's a self-funded business, still exists today. So that's 14 years later. Uh, my wife runs it. And it, it, it's incredible how easy it was to launch something back then and get people excited. And it's incredible how hard it is today. Yeah. Right? Like literally to get someone to pay attention. Like you can't get signups as easy as you used to. Right? So when I, when I think about a lot of those kind of shifts in the world uh, and, and this sort of ideology of growth, it, it's like we went from that which was, it was actually easy. Like we actually launched on dig.com wow. back in 05, 06. Yeah. And, uh, pre-product hunt. Servers well went down, yeah. right? Servers went down more wow. traffic than we've ever got from product hunt on wow. any launch. That's amazing. It used to be like, it started actually with the TechCrunch effect where you used to get that kind of, not that kind, but pro- yeah. I would say you used to get product hunt traffic when you could get up on TechCrunch, like that level of traffic servers wouldn't always go down unless you were, you know, kind of weak sauce there, which is fine. Um, shit happens. And then the dig effect, which was tremendous for everybody. I mean, even like content sites would go down when they got dug, right. Or digged or whatever. And then now you have product hunt and you know, all that, which we we all know a lot about now. Um, and how, how that all kind of took place and worked and you had a great part in that. And and so we, we went from like this world where it was easy and you could put something out, even if it wasn't unique and people would love it. I, I I would call that the pre Ruby on Rails, 37 signalization yeah. of the world. Now we're in this era. Then we came to this era where it was like, okay, there's all these apps out there and stuff. Like, how do we grow these things? And then, uh, you know, we actually, the growth hacking, specifically the terminology was um, uh, coined by Sean Ellis at a uh, bar in Southern California where him, myself, and uh, a friend, Patrick, were just talking about the thing, and he came up with it, and we are just chatting about it. I think it's taken on a, uh, taken off a, li- a life of its own, and, and just like Lean Startup and many other terms, like they jump the shark at some point, and everyone thinks they know what it is. Nobody really knows what it is anymore, and it doesn't matter because yeah. it just becomes embedded. Lean Startup is actually embedded in every company. Even if they think they're not lean, they're doing yeah. like five aspects of it. So for example, if you're on your engineering team, you're doing continuous deployment, tons of unit testing, guess what? You're a lean startup, sorry. Like, yeah. like that's a core tenant to it from an engineering standpoint. You iterate fast, you ship every day. Well, like everybody does that, yeah. right? Um, so when you think about this stuff, like I don't care anymore. 
I think like it's a whole company's job to get growth. Yeah. It doesn't matter what part of the company you sit in. doesn't matter what you do, whether you're in finance or customer support or whatever, you're doing that. And that's what happens to these things. Like they just become common knowledge. They become something that if, if you're starting out today, you don't really care about growth hacking. But there's some article that talks about optimizing signups on your homepage and you're reading it because you don't know how to do that. Well, you're growth hacking, right? And, you know, in my air quotes as I say it. So I don't know, man. Like, I, it's everywhere. So much content out there now. Yeah. And, like, the terminology always, like, it surprises me how hard it is to keep a category of, like, concept or a concept like that. Yeah. And, and, like, keep, keep it on people's mind and, and still have steam. Yeah. So you know, the funny thing is like, Sean Ellis coined the term. You know, the most fantastic thing he did though, and it's something I learned from him personally, is the product market fit survey. Oh, so say more about that. So this is a survey where you ask, how disappointed would you be if this product no longer existed? Well, guess what? Rahul from Superhuman comes along and essentially uses the methodology and talks about how successful he is with it in a first round review article and now like, Every time I talk to a founder, you know, that wasn't around back then yeah. is telling me about it. And, and I'm like, so, and, and I'll leave it at this. So my concern is that we're just circling around ideas that are a dozen years old. Yeah. Where's the new stuff? Maybe there doesn't need to be totally fair. Where's the new stuff? Cause nothing Rahul said is new. Right. It's just new to so many people. Cause now there's like, I don't know, 10,000 times yeah. the amount of people that were out from 12 years ago. Cause I think Chanel's came up with that popularizer around 2007. Right. That's way more interesting and useful to a business startup or not that whole product market fit sur surveying that he did right. than any growth hacking thing that's been written or done because totally. growth conversion rate optimization existed before growth hacking. That's essentially the same thing on a very high level. Yeah. So like, I just keep shrugging it at you at all this yeah. stuff. Cause it's like, this is like, I feel like either an old man, a historian or missing something. Cause I'm really stupid. Right? Like, I don't right. know, but all this, like what's old is new again is yes. all I keep coming back to. I'll, I'll take historian. <laughs> uh, a, 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 few, a few branch off questions. One is when you are advising Mathilde or, or the next Mathilde, cause maybe she's old now, you know, front is, is done very well on, on go to market or founders who aren't trained on how to think about go-to-market, particularly in enterprise, what do you find them advising or what mistakes do they typically make or misconceptions do they have on? Yeah, I can speak to my own experience because I'm in the middle of this right now, but like, I think that no matter what, the most effective sales is founder-led sales. So the thing that the best end up doing, sometimes accidentally, I actually got to give YC props for this. Some of the pressure they put on some of the, some of the ways they think about it have made like some huge strides on like how founders think about sales. Mm. So I would say that like from an enterprise or a B2B standpoint, you have to know that eventually your product has to hit the large companies or you will not grow. Yeah. Doesn't matter, like even if you're SMB targeted, at some point these things cap out. And that could be that like, it's not about enterprise sales for you, like, like Fortune 500. It could be that it's about using agencies as a channel partner to get to SMBs. I don't care, but there's some form of sales that feels enterprisey or feels like larger contract or like you have to do a bunch of negotiation or a bunch of, uh, you know, org chart mapping and things like that. And I find it that whether it's channel sales, like going through agencies or direct enterprise sales, depending on what your business is, um, where founders tend to be light. Yeah. 
I can't say they're light in a lot of stuff because that would go against what I just said, which is like there's a lot of content out there. Right. But that's the area where like if I were a founder and I was thinking of and I am one right now and I have a freemium business and it has this criteria, you could say, hey, you can completely ignore enterprise customers and stuff like that. I actually think the opposite. Yeah. I'm like, I have to pay attention to them because otherwise I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. And compare the, the different groups you, you just mentioned in terms of the different approaches that one might take to each. If you know that the, your product can service enterprise customers and there's a line item, there's a budget. I would focus on budget and then I would go do sales discovery as soon as possible, even before you're ready. Yeah. Five people will talk to you. People will talk to you. That's not the biggest problem because at least then you know, okay, where am I headed? Is there opportunity there? Is there not? So I think it's a lot about like problem market kind of validation there of like, is this an, is this something where I can sell to enterprise one day? If so, what do they need to buy something like this? Or what are they buying currently in my category? Um, so those are, those are some thoughts there. And that has a lot to do with just learning how to do outbound emails and sending the emails and dealing with rejection and getting on calls and just talking to them and learning how to do all that. Got to do it yourself. So that's one approach. Uh, if you're going to use channel partners like agencies, it's more, more of a business development sort of angle. And I only bring up agencies because HubSpot's been super successful. I think 40% with this, 40% of their revenue comes from agencies. Uh, there's stories out there about how it was an accidental find by one gentleman over there that was like working on optimizing some forums and saw that like high percentage of people are agencies and HubSpot didn't do anything about agencies. And all of a sudden now that's like, not all of a sudden, years later, it's like a big channel for them. So there, it's just like, go talk to agencies. Right. See if they can get you to the SMBs you want because they're already servicing them. Like who actually helps your customers and can you go partner with them, yeah. right? Um, those are the kind of things I think about. And how do you advise for the best, uh, start from the best ways to pick customers, whether it's, whether it's type of customer, SMB, enterprise, you know, others, or even like by sector or by, by industry? How do you think with customer selection? I think it's always about pain. So early on when you have an idea, it's about figuring out who has the most pain for it. Or sorry, not for it. Yeah, basically. Who has the most pain for what you're looking to solve? And if you can identify that and talk to enough of a group, you'll figure out who's right for it right now. What you're really trying to do is try to figure out who's, who's your earliest adopters. Now the markets are very large. There's so many companies out there. So many, so many, I mean, even startups are a market. Like you can, you could get to 10, tens of millions in revenue these days just by servicing startups. Um, but if they don't have any pain, you won't even make a dollar from them, right? Or keep a dollar from them. So to me, it has everything to do with like doing enough, either research, conversations, building something fast, getting it out to them, whatever your method is. I, I'm not very prescriptive about that. It's usually what's fastest for you uh, and figuring out who cares. Basically, like who gives a shit? And how about, um, Pricing. What's the best way to think about pricing or any um, rules of thumb there? If you're able to either spend money or have a volume of customers, there's a lot of pricing, research, and survey methodologies that you should absolutely use. Whether If you have enough capital to put at it uh, or if you have uh, um, ability to reach the customer and enough of them. Uh, and there's a bunch of research methodologies using survey. So that's one angle. The other angle is just put up a page and charge people money. What you're really looking for when it comes to pricing is you're trying to identify what's the best value metric for your business. And there's there's two things there. There's one which is like, you know, like I mentioned, per user pricing for FYI. We know we wanted that. So that's one aspect. But the thing is like, we, we need to understand as a business, just like everyone else does, it, it, what's gonna cause people to not just buy, but what's gonna cause them to upgrade? Yeah. And how can you determine a value metric where like, it's almost like as aligned as you can get it where as they're more successful, they're willing to pay you more money. How about sequencing in terms of uh, people don't know when to when to start charging, where to chart from the beginning? If you have time 
and you really feel convicted on being able to wait to charge, mm. then wait. Most people don't have time and they don't have as much conviction on waiting. So then charge as soon as possible. Yeah. That, that, that's the, the right answer is always charge as soon as possible. The, pro, the caveats are like, well, if you have a bunch of capital and your product might be harder to build, or it might be so new that you have to do a little more discovery to figure out what the real pain is and what people are willing to pay, it might take longer. But usually putting up a pricing page and putting a credit card gate somewhere is really beneficial. So charging as soon as possible is the kind of generic advice. I think the caveats are like, if you're building a freemium business, you need to make sure it has high retention and it spreads. And those two things are really important. So unless you're just using free as a marketing tactic, which many people propose, then then you're just using free to get people to that point where they yeah. need to pay. But really for us, like the way we think about that is we have, we have pricing plans. We don't care about the revenue coming in. We need to make people feel like they can trust us when they connect all these apps. So we have a pricing plan. But really like what we care about is learning about retention and adoption yeah. before we care about pricing for our business because it's a freemium business. Uh, very much like uh, the business model Slack has yeah. uh, in terms of like how we think about it. And so if you charge for that too early, then sometimes you get so hooked on that revenue that you right. never build the free part of it. And you don't build the free part of it, you, then you don't learn about what's going to cause people to upgrade. And then you end up with this sort of business that, again, if you, that's your criteria, go for it. Right. But our criteria isn't just that. Yeah. We want to have a massive uh, user base. Yeah. And the way to do that is have a free product. And let's go into adoption and, and retention. H how do you think about, you know, 2020, what channels or uh, how do you even frame, you know, adoption and acquisition? There are so many um, channels and methods on acquiring customers today. And so I still find there's a book called Traction. It's by, uh, I think his name's Gabe. He started DuckDuckGo. It's still a great framework for like experimentation. So I think channels are all marketing and acquisition is all about experimentation. And the book actually lays out the framework um, and tells you how to experiment with channels yeah. and how to determine them. And, and what, what I really love about it is like they start talking about what market are you in? What's your category? Yeah. And what are, can you dissect what other people have done in the past to be successful? Totally. And then you're essentially just experimenting with those same tactics in the new world, you know, because it's obviously a new world. Uh, you're doing it now and trying to figure out what works. And th it's that basic and simple. And so even if you don't know anything about marketing, if you read that book and then go start just using the framework, yeah. you will get really far with marketing. Totally. Um, that's my answer. It's actually a book recommendation, right? Yeah. Uh, and then obviously applying it. Um, that's acquisition. I think in terms of adoption, uh, the way I think about that is like, you have a product, people sign up for it. What you really need to figure out is why were the people who were not, who did not take the next step after sign up? Why didn't they take, not take the next step? And on the same sort of on the other side of that coin is why are the people that actually did take the next step, take the next step? So a good example is let's say you're building a project management tool, um, activation. So like the point where you feel like someone's activated on a project management tool tends to be they created a project and they invited like two people into it. So what I would try to figure out is how come people who never created a project, why didn't they not create a project? And the people that did create a project and even get to that point, what got them there? And so then you start figuring out things like, is it a certain type of person? Is it a certain role? Is it a certain type of company? Is it a certain use case? And once you really map that out, you're like, okay, well, we take all those learnings and change our product and double down on the flows and the way we email people and the customer success you know, strategies uh, to make it so that we have as many people as possible 
getting to that point of activation and, and, and likely to be retained with the product. And, and how about retention? What's the philosophy or framework for, for thinking about that? I think it's an area where people don't spend enough time. If you were to ask me what's the next like growth hacking, it's like some framework or some way of understanding retention. And it just doesn't exist. In terms of retention, I like to bucket it into, into some kind of buckets oriented around like week one, two to four, and post like week four. So week five plus. So those are buckets of retention. And then, and then from there, at those different levels, you're trying to figure out a bunch of stuff, right? You're trying to figure out like what, 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 can, what, what happens in the first week for people who are retained for that week. What happens in week two to four for people who are retained then and five plus. So I bucket out retention into time-based cohorts of retention and figure out what's going to cause it. I think the most controversial thing that I say when I talk about retention is like, no matter what your product is, you can get daily retention. A lot of people have this weird belief. I call it weird. It's probably just like a, a normal belief that certain types of products have a certain cadence in terms of I can only we can only get people to come back every week we can only get people to come back every month and i'd call a little bit of bs on that and be like you're telling me you can't add value to someone's life every day based on what they signed up for and what your product is and that's bullshit like you can't you just need to figure out how what are they doing around your category what are they doing around what the intent is of your product that will have the highest potential to bring them back daily and for a b2b product really how can you get in their workflow daily workflow so I'd be, I'm looking to identify daily workflow-oriented uh, opportunities for any type of product or business. And I've had people like shoot all kinds of random thoughts at me about like, oh, I'm in this category and it's like this. I'm like, well, what can you send them every day? What email can you send them every day that's actually highly likely to be valuable to them? It's not about like, oh, let's go do a bunch of notifications and stuff like that to go get retention. It's more like, how do we actually add value to their lives based on what they signed up for and what the category of product we're in is? And I feel like not enough companies are spending enough time on those kind of challenges. Also, the last thing I'll say about it, and again, I feel like a broken record on this, but not everyone kind of has heard it or read the, read, read the stuff, but the most meaningful retention lever is onboarding. When people sign up and the first set of things they experience has the most impact on uh, the kind of retention that you end up having. And what are the different frameworks of onboarding? People know the because if they read the first round review article on Superhuman that they had their very sort of hands-on onboarding. They do calls with with their with their customers. What are their different um, the different approaches to onboarding, or what's most important to figure out in the onboarding flow? I think they have a high touch process in a existing highly competitive market with two or three established players and they built on top of one of them anyway and we'll probably build on top of the other one Microsoft and Google um, so their case to me is somewhat unique in the sense of like they're hitting an existing market that's very crowded and are providing a premium product and so they want to they need to provide a premium premium experience and they've learned what that premium experience looks like that gets hopefully retention but nobody knows because they haven't shared their retention numbers um, or their churn or anything like that so that's still questionable as to like how successful that approach is and we might never know right because it is what it is so that's one approach which is like more high touch but at a 29 dollars a month product i'm not sure if the roi works out right and if you can scale that on a high touch approach yeah. 
So there's a big question mark when you do that stuff. So I like to do that stuff to learn. What's going to cause people to actually use this product and retain? And you can do concierge onboarding. Actually, in the sort of micropreneur world, so the bootstrap, self-funded, lifestyle business world, they call that concierge onboarding. Even in Lean Startup, they call it Wizard of Oz, and there's all all these other terminology for it, but whatever. Um, And so all you're really doing is hand-holding people to learn. So I really love that. But then what I'd want to do is how can we as quickly as possible go build tooling and automation around it? To Superhuman's credit, they have a game that teaches you shortcuts. They have tool tips for shortcuts. And now a lot of other products have that, including Gmail, probably because of Superhuman, right? And so I think there's a high amount of learnings you get when you handhold people through the product to understand what's going to cause retention during onboarding. I would almost suggest that to everybody to do for a period of time so they can really understand what the drivers are and what people say in their heads. Because you can't really get the psychology of people until you're literally talking to them, watching them walk through it and hearing what they have to say and finding those patterns uh, with people. Outside of that, like, I'm not really a fan of wizards and tool tips and like helpers. I'm much more a fan of like single, during onboarding have single use screens that you walk people through that you know if they do these things, they're gonna be retained. And so I'm just looking to figure out what are the things people need to do in order for us to retain them and how can we bring that as upfront in the product experience right after they sign up as possible. What are some or, or one of the uh, mistakes that you find uh, enterprise founders are, are, are making today um, or that you're advising uh, founders or that uh, you think, or, or, or flips, what are the things that enterprise founders should be doing that they're not yet doing? I think the one word is positioning and in really being able to identify uh, who cares about your product, what they care about, uh, uh, and having some framework of, of thinking about that. So thinking about the customer a lot more precisely in terms of positioning at the end of the day and how to position the product. And, you know, there's some great books on that. Um, there's a new one called Obviously Awesome. It's a framework for helping you nail your positioning. So what you'll realize when you start reading it, if you haven't done this work before, is that there's a lot more questions than answers to the framework of like being able to identify who the customer is, what they care about, what the value props are, and things like that. And then you then have to go do your homework with your actual customers or potential customers, figure out what they care about and fill that stuff in. Once you fill that stuff in, life becomes a lot easier. Any kind of marketing you do, you know who you're targeting. You also know what you're targeting them for um, and all kinds of things like that. So I like to work backwards from sort of some of that, some of those frameworks that are really valuable and they're very like, some people will think they're boring, right? So founders make the mistake of like thinking this stuff is like either MBA oriented stuff and they're trying to get away from that or that it's not useful to them. But at the end of the day, at some point you're going to hire a marketer and they're going to need to know that stuff. And if you've already done the homework and gotten super far with before you hire someone to solve that problem, you're going to be better off. So I think the, the high level mistake I think founders make in general, B2B or not, is they're not, they don't understand how to become learning machines and get good enough at something until they can hire someone for it. Totally. I want to name a, a, a few spaces and just get your takes, sure. uh, your perspective on them. One is um, doing there's an opportunity to build a huge uh, company in the calendar space. And if uh, why hasn't it been done yet? And what 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 do you think the approach should be? Yeah. When you think about productivity, because that's another productivity kind of product. It's like, what's the wedge? So if you ask me who's going to be the superhuman of, of calendar, it's going to be superhuman once they get their act together and build out proper calendar. And I say act together because like, I'm just curious why they haven't yet. And I'm, I, you know, I build product. I understand, yeah. right? It's more of a challenge to them. When are you going to build a calendar? Because like they obviously know how to build really fast, usable product. Yep. 
I can't take that away from them. Nobody really can because if you look at their product, it is really fast and usable and it rivals Gmail, which is like a feat in itself. That being said, is that same strength and muscle useful for a calendar product? I don't know. What does a new calendar product look like? And, you know, I, I was definitely one of the fans of Sunrise, big time. So I think pretty hard about that. Um, so I actually think Superhuman should get their act together. What about personal CRM? Is anyone going to build a big company in, in that space? People, the product VCs love to say that they wish they had for themselves, but is there enough demand? I've, I've spent time with founders deeply working on that space. I haven't seen anyone identify the real pain. And so unless we can find what the real pain is of like, what is the problem a personal CRM really solves for enough people? I think those are niche products. And it could be, you could say that the world's not in a place where that kind of product can be magical enough where it just tells you what to do and it requires some brain power. And there's so many different goals when you have meetings and stuff and try to keep up with people. That's a little difficult. Like for example, you'd think there are processes. So I guess the way I, on a high level, the way I'd say it is even today, the CRMs, CRMs we use, they suck. Like just the sales CRMs. And that's a very structured linear process. Mm -hmm. How can you build a personal CRM without any structure or linear process? I don't know. Right. So I feel like there isn't a universal problem and pain that anyone's figured out how to solve yet. Yeah. And it might just be too too broad of a problem to solve. What do you think Product Hunt could have done? Um, let's go back to you know earlier. That's a loaded question, dude. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no pressure or if you don't want to. No, it's not a pressure, it's a loaded question. I, um, yeah, the, the way I think about it is there was a core value prop of Product Hunt and it was for a certain type of person, uh, whether it's product people or quite frankly, investors early on. Um, and the value proposition was find new stuff. Just simply, simply put, find new products, yeah. whatever they are. To me, the doubling down of that value prop and core value proposition would have been what I think the company's starting to do now with Stacks, yeah. which is their sort of, I'm gonna call it a review product. Yeah. I think the big business there is like help people decide what they should use. Yeah. Whether it's at work or at home, it doesn't matter. Cause like it's pretty broad. Yeah. And I would have went after that and only that. I wouldn't have gone after anything else. Because yeah. I think that the expansion to a bigger market has to do with people's inability to make a, not inability, the difficulty of choosing what to, what, to, what to use, what to buy. You're talking about like this, this thing could have been disruptive to Wirecutter. Yeah. It could have been disruptive to G2 crowd mm-hmm. or G2, whatever they're called. Or, you know, and yeah, you're right. There's many directions. That being said, it, the launching off point to me was the fact that you had these core group of people trying to find new stuff. Yeah. They weren't necessarily trying to find new stuff to figure out what to buy or use. They were trying to find new stuff to invest in or find new stuff to get inspired by. Those were the first use cases, yeah. but I could easily see that turn into um, uh, help me decide. Yeah. That's what I would have totally. explored in hindsight uh, much earlier yeah. and not gotten distracted with some of the other things that might not have mattered. Totally. I'm not sure if choosing a book mattered. Right. I'm not sure if podcasts mattered, although we've gotten a lot of traffic from Product Hunt for our podcast. Um, 
And I think it really is more about how do I make a decision of what to use? How do I make a decision of what to buy when there's plenty of choices out there? Totally. What's right for me type of thing. Totally. And it was a, it was a nice outcome and Ryan did a great job. No so, doubt. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes just nice to wonder, you know, uh, uh, how could it have been e- even bigger? No, no, no. It's a loaded question. Yeah. I've got lots of thoughts. That's why I said it's loaded. Totally, totally. I mean, what do you, what but do you want? But I, I meant it in a, yeah. in a tribute kind of, of way. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, similarly, another company that was pretty big outcome, uh, even bigger, uh, LinkedIn. Um, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned daily habit. LinkedIn was a company that got big, and for a lot of people, it, it, it wasn't a daily habit. Um, and, and just maybe a tribute to the to the value of the data that they had. Um, the question, I guess, is less what, what they could have done and more um, how could they how can they be disrupted? Or, or how is there going to be a next LinkedIn? Or is it going to be all sort of niche vertical companies? Um, or is it going to be some Craigslist that's going to lead to lots of different big companies? Or how do you sort of see that space? I'm going to go into two things. Uh, one is just a statement that's like so true. And I think Microsoft is like I'm super long Microsoft now. They own two of the largest professional networks on the planet. One, which is just straight up a professional network with LinkedIn and another with GitHub. Yeah. And networks are hard to beat. Networks are almost impossible to beat. So you end up having to mostly specialize. Either you specialize on one use case for everybody, so one feature. Maybe it's like uh, their experts or recommendations feature of like well, who people are yeah. good at, right? And maybe you build off of that uh, for LinkedIn to attack it. I don't think that's a good attack point because they already have that, yeah. and they've done a pretty decent job of it. Um, or you go after just a certain vertical, and you know that that vertical and the things you do there either translate over time, or that vertical is so big and it's like a nascent part of LinkedIn. So that's one aspect of it. But I, I don't know. Whoever made those decisions at Microsoft to buy those networks, either, yeah, like, it's just, like, I'm so long on that company compared to some other companies just because they have two of the largest networks on the planet yeah. and the most valuable, monetizable ones. Um, and so that's one piece, and, and that's all I got there. I think the big thing for me, and, and, like, you know, on that note, I think GitLab is super impressive because I know you didn't ask about Git, GitHub, but, like, wow. Yeah. Damn. Like, such a good differentiated value prop to GitHub that is a moat and defensible for GitLab, right? And just right on, right? In terms of going after it. I kind of feel the same about, I think the company's called Mattermost, which is an open source competitor to Slack. Yeah, so there's just just obvious play sometimes where it's like you do the more liberal, so to speak, open source-y type thing against the thing that's not like that. And you can probably build a big business if the pain's big enough. Yeah. But GitLab network kind of thing is not quite as strong as Git, GitHub, but the use case and on-premise and open source and all this stuff, wow. And I think same same possibility around Slack you know, uh, and all that. So that's one thing I'll say. Uh, and then the second thing, which is I think a bigger like PETA and, and one of the things that's annoyed me the most and made me for years stop building new software, I'm back at it again though, is you asked me like what was the... What was the thing about Product Hunter? Like, what could they have become and done? You're right, great outcome, great. Same with LinkedIn, right? A company's ability to build the right thing fast enough is all that matters. So now you got to identify the right thing. What I said about both companies is pretty obvious. I mean, LinkedIn, I don't have anything to say except they were too slow. They're just too slow. They still are, right? Product Hunt, same thing. What do you think the issue is? It goes to the E word, engineering, (laughs) right? It's like, we suck at building software. Everybody. And it's like the biggest problem, I think. It's the reason it's hard to grow. It's the number one reason. We think it's okay to miss ship dates. We think it's okay to not plan 
what we're going to build in engineering. We think it's okay to be like, oh, there's three people in a room. We're just going to crank on this thing. Well, what about when you need 50? What happens? You slow down. You have tech debt. I mean, think about even Slack, right? They had, uh, from what, what I can tell, an 18-month to 24-month refactor, and they couldn't ship new features. I don't even need to talk to anyone at Slack to know that, right? Like, it's just yeah. you could see it in the product. Yeah. Have you used Slack lately? Um, you use it every day? Uh, I, I use it for work, yeah. I'm sort of speechless at the degradation of reliability, even though they refactored it. And I, I'm pretty sure that it's virtually impossible to fix that. Now, if you think about it, same problem LinkedIn has. You know how slow that product is? Slow. Right. Well, it was built at a time when, like, I, I don't remember. I think it was Java, right? Like, I get it. But crap, we suck at this because yeah. these things are slow and now people have different expectations. So the fastest, most important thing you can do is figure out what it is you can, what it is to get right. And so I think Slack got a bunch of stuff right and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. But imagine if is where my head is. Imagine if we were just better at building software. And are you excited about companies that are trying to make it easier for us to build better software? Or? I don't know if any company really is. I don't know if it's a company thing or a cultural and process thing and us getting past a bunch of limited belie- limiting beliefs. Like the limiting belief of like nothing ships on time. Right. Well, that sucks. Yeah. Why would you, what? Yeah. Like that's like saying like, come on. Like that's like saying like, like uh, my package won't be delivered when Amazon tells me it's going to be. They already figured that out. Yeah. I understand engineering is more complex supposedly, but here you're moving like physical items around across planes and ships and stuff yeah. like that. Really? So I don't know what we're doing wrong. Yes, I'm excited about everything that comes out that proposes to help, yeah. but we're still in this sad state. Yeah. Do you think uh, no code is only growing and here to stay and going to change the way we build companies? I feel like there are a lot of people that are really excited about it. And, there's a, and, and a lot of people get excited about new shiny things. Yeah. And there's a ton of value in most of these new shiny things. But just like growth hacking and lean startup, does no code just become... A way of th- a way a way of things. I actually think Zapier is probably one of the most interesting and game-changing businesses that we still barely label as no code. But all, and there's a lot of offshoots of it that are in the automation space yeah. and things like that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, like yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great that people are talking about it. I would love to see more and more information out there on what's actually possible in no code and the sort of, and there's stuff out there, right? Like there, there's enough stuff out there, but like, I'd love to see the contrast of here's what, what it would take with code. Here's what it would, here's what we can do. Here's what we can do with the stitching the stuff together with no code. And those contrasts I think are what is missing out there. It's not just the case studies of like, here's how to do X with no code, but it's like, like really hammering people's heads. If no code is to grow and become a thing, a more of a thing, and become ubiquitous, it's like, what's the difference? Yeah. How, how much faster can you do something? Because that saves time and money and resources and headcount and all that stuff. There's not enough of that out there. So I guess the thing I would complain about there is if that movement is going to move forward in a way that's meaningful, we need to start knowing the difference between code and no code, hmm. if that really is the value prop. Yeah. And how should we think about that difference? Time and money. Yeah. How is this cheaper and faster? That's it. That's what no code the whole proposition is. And I don't see enough noise, enough knowledge, enough case studies, enough about the difference. Yeah. Not just you can do it with no code. Yeah. What's really the difference? Because that's when you start seeing larger and larger organizations start paying attention to it because they can save money. 
a couple of things. One is, uh, I was recommended to ask you if you're open to sharing the uh, the story about uh, intercom versus drift and any any lessons there. I guess I have the broad question, and if you don't want to mention that example, that's fine. A broad question of how startups should think about competition when when it starts to get interesting. Because maybe day zero, don't worry about competition. But I think what you're looking for when you compete is another company's blind spot. And I think Drift brilliantly identified Intercom's blind spot by starting, starting embarrassingly. Hey, you're just an Intercom copy. You're just an Intercom copy. You're just an Intercom copy. Oh, wait. Intercom started copying you now. So I would say that the execution there was brilliant in finding an opportunity that's like a gap that another company just couldn't see until they could. So the fact that Intercom had to copy Drift was was the evidence that Drift got onto something. While in the beginning, Drift copied Intercom. So I think it's like kudos to the Drift team for being strategic. Kudos to Intercom for giving up on some of their public beliefs to copy Drift because they had to give up on some public beliefs they had about human humans chatting and things like that in order for them to be able to kind of imitate or copy drift or whatever and they did copy drift like this right. is factual and w- as w- much w- as they might say they didn't they did it's w- factual right which part uh focusing on sales and building out sales automation and sales bots and stuff like that i don't i think the bolder move would be like yeah we've got conversational marketing too but they haven't done that yet from what i can see because they definitely have the ability to put a message out in the market in a way that drift now does too so I think competition is really interesting. And there are some people like David Cantle at Drift and the team over there that are able to find an opportunity and really capitalize on it yeah. that someone else should be doing. Yeah, That's what they've been very good at historically. Totally. And it's, it's a DNA thing. So it's a little bit of a unique story. But the lesson there for me is like, if you're going to go enter a market, figure out how to resegment it. Yeah. And it's okay to look like a copy. Until you figure out what it is, as long as you're conscious that like, look, I want to enter that market, we're going to enter that market and we're going to go use, use what we enter into and what we build and the usage we get to learn what the actual differentiated opportunity is. So for all intents and purposes, I think the folks at Drift found a differentiated opportunity using a discovery process by copying a competitor or seemingly copying a competitor because i don't actually think those products compete they only started competing they competed early on supposedly and then they they stopped competing because intercom just couldn't do what drift could and now they're competing again because intercom added that feature in intercom has a platform and a system to be able to add more use cases to their product which i think is a brilliant business case in itself that should be written one day um that being said i think drift got closer to the revenue and closer to the money inside of companies Faster. Is there another uh, or or any other uh, examples that you think should be written into case studies one day? It remains to be seen, but I think superhuman is a good case, a case of finding a behavior and doubling down on that behavior inside your product. So a lot of people tout superhuman for the speed. I would say that that company's gotten really good at teaching people shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. While no one else has done that. Gmail never taught me shortcuts the way the superhuman does. Right. And that's from my perspective. And I've done some tweets on this a while ago to just see if I'm right. Basically, I asked if if anyone has used superhuman, quit, and gotten better with Gmail after they quit. Hmm. Most people said yes. Yeah. And my thesis was is because of shortcuts. Right. So there's almost like a gap there that they discovered. Now, the question is, what do they do with that gap? 
do they do like what Drift did and build a massive business out by widening that gap and like doing what's next? Hence my whole call to arms around calendar, which I'm sure they're working on. I mean, they have to be right. Um, or do they just flail? Cause like they didn't double down on that uniqueness or what they figured out. We don't know. Yeah. Right. But I think that's a very interesting case. And then now when you think of the case of like superhuman for X, which we'll see, uh, I know there's a lot of plays out there like superhuman for X. Um, and I have my own issues with analogies like that at the end of the day. Cause like, what does that really mean? Is, does that apply to every market? How, yeah. um, that's a case itself. That's another one that I'm pretty like curious about. It didn't really work for Uber for X. No, it didn't. That's right. A lot of companies that didn't work out. There you go. Um, so how do you think about the legacy between, you know, Kissmetrics, Mixpanel, Intercom? How do, how do you sort of think about the legacy of these kinds of, these kinds of businesses and how they've evolved? Like, could you have foreseen in 2000, you know, whenever that, that it would have evolved this way? Yeah, we, we had prototypes uh, at Kissmetrics of Intercom built into analytics because we thought that was right before Intercom existed. We had prototypes of and so mock-ups and research around what Heap Analytics has done, which is like automated tracking. Um, back to like that engineering thing I said and all that, I think like we screwed up because we didn't know how to execute. We didn't know how to capitalize the business. And I think that like when you're inventive like that, it, it can be a struggle to actually like execute. And so I tend to try not to be as, uh, try not to be too smart for my own good right. and come up with more and more ideas and instead double down on the core. Um, you know, back to even the thesis on product hunt around like what could have happened. I yeah. think there's a doubling down on core that I would recommend all, most companies do faster totally. so that they can get to the more expansive opportunities. It's like, unless your core is strong, there's no reason to double down. That, that would be the kind of the thesis I have. Um, so what we can learn from the amplitudes, kiss metrics, intercom, et cetera, is like, I don't think actually Intercom has done a poor job of most things. Yeah, I think they've done a great job. They're a great business. And it, they're, they were bound to get sliced up by other folks. And they are, not just Drift. There's a lot of other folks going after it. I think the only thing Intercom's done that they could have done better is they could have kept the love of startups that they used to have. That'd be my only criticism there. There's too many people that are really irritated by their price hikes. Mm. That being said, like maybe it's a Salesforce strategy where you just stop caring about that market. That being said, when Salesforce stopped caring about the, the low-end market, there was really no low-end market to make enough money on. I think there is now. And so you're letting a lot of companies take your revenue if you don't make the bottom end happy fast enough these days, especially if you started there. Intercom used to be loved by startups. Yeah. Now all I hear is dissatisfaction. Not hate, right. but dissatisfaction. We're talking about lean startup. We're talking about iterated approach. Keith Raboy like usually likes to uh, use Apple as a counterexample. Is that... Are they both, is Apple also doing lean startup? And or how do you think about the approach of, you know, Reed Hoffman, if you haven't shipped fast enough, then you, you know the quote, you're embarrassed. If you're not embarrassed by your product, you haven't shipped fast enough versus the Apple approach of, hey, ship one was perfect. I don't know if anybody knows anything about enough about how some of these other companies operate to be able to speak to it the way that some people try to. That being said, like, I'm a huge fan of what Keith has said recently around forging product market fit. And I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Right. Say, say more about this. Well, he talks about forging product market fit. It's really gotten stuck in my head. I'm not sure if you iterate into product market fit. I think you have to have a really strong conviction and ideology about where the, where the world is going and what you need to build for it. And if you don't have that, then like you're going to iterate your way into probably nothingness or samesies, 
like someone else. And then you're just relying on better marketing or some better sales or something to keep the business going. But that means that you don't necessarily have strong enough product market fit in the market. So like this idea of forging it, uh, is really appealing to me. And so if I were to get to ask him something, I'd be like, what the heck do you mean by that? Tell me everything because I don't think it's mutually exclusive to iteration or shipping and being embarrassed. At the same time, like I feel like it hits on the idea of you have to have a vision. You have to have some idea of where things are going to go. And you might not have it on day one, yeah. but you need to have it as soon as possible because then you're driving towards it. You're actually yeah. driving towards it. You're not just sitting there iterating towards it. So uh, give me and, and my, my the team at OnDeck that's working on Cosign uh, some advice that incubating this, this company, I've talked a little bit about it on the podcast where basically it's sort of like, and I've, I've, I've sent emails to you and you've been helpful uh, about, um, it's like a professional network based on who you vouch for and who vouches for you. Um, and so it's trying to sort of do a couple things. One is unbundle LinkedIn endorsements, but, but done really, really well. So there's three categories, people who have shaped your career, people who uh, you'd work with anywhere or people who you think are, are rising stars. And I guess my, my, it's trying to do two things. I mentioned one, LinkedIn endorsements. Two, sort of peer, peer-to-peer credentials. Right now, we pay Harvard, Stanford, whatever, you know, quarter million dollars, a lot of money to get a piece of paper that says I'm awesome. But Heaton, if I asked you who are five people who you think are up and coming of, of that age group and and that you've spent some time with that you think are likely to be successful, I would actually value that more than a Harvard degree. But I know you. I don't know who those people are. Most people don't know who, who those people are. And so I think that's value left, left on the table. So I have a couple questions for you. One is, there's a couple of big ifs. One is if you were if you were able to build that network and get that data, um, it's somewhat of like a glass door for people, but only in a positive sense and in you know targeted for for work. Um, how do you build a business off that data? Uh, and then two, uh, the challenge of course of, of getting that data uh, and and because you can you know we have five thousand cosigns that just emailing people is sort of a give to get, but it's really not going to scale unless you have sort of a viral, um, you know, unless the people who get co-signed want to co-sign others and you sort of have, you know, outside of our network. How do you react to that? What's your, what's your advice for us? The, the word leaderboard comes in my head. I, I think that's a type of business that social pressure, social proof, all those aspects are what I'd experiment with building it. So it's almost like convince me that if I do this thing, I can be a winner. Yeah. That's really what it boils down to. I can be the first one to vouch for this person. Totally. Yeah. That's right? Like, 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 like things like that, I think, yeah. end up driving that business. And then you almost all of a sudden have a profile of, I know this is the aim, like roughly speaking, but you have a profile of who vouches for whom. Yeah. Right? And make me feel great about that. So I think there's tons of public pages to build out yeah. around that idea. I think it's inherently has a strong potential to be viral, so to speak. Um, but the core of it is just people vouching for each other. Yeah. And I think some of the things you mentioned around it might make it too complicated. Yeah. So it's like, just who cares? Like if they're up and who cares about the categories? Yeah. yeah. Like that's my, in my mind. Totally. I just want to vouch for someone. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like I vouch, then you make me categorize. Right. Instead of like I categorize. Yeah. And then, or the categories are, and then under them. So yeah. to me, it's more about I vouch and then you make me categorize is kind of what, what's in my mind. Cause like, yeah, there are people I'd vouch for. You can give me ideas, but like, I feel like when I'm forced to like, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like, it's one where I'd experiment with both models and see, yeah. like, like what emails get the highest click-through rate and opt-in yeah. rates. Um, I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, and then to your point about monetization, 
there are some ideas and some things where it's like, you know, the data is so valuable and the information is so valuable that like, it's an experiment. You build it in a capital efficient way until you have enough data and you have hypotheses around how that data is valuable. You can start testing those early before you have the data to make sure you're directionally correct. Like who would pay for that? Who would buy it? Like, is it companies? Is it part of a recruiting process? What is it? Um, And what can you build on the back end of that? But it's a data play. And so a data play is like in parallel, like go get the data and in parallel, go make sure that the data is going to be valuable. Totally. And it, some some of them are not super obvious. Like this one's not super obvious as to who is, he'll be valuable for. I think there are some ideas. And so it would be a parallel effort in my mind. Yeah. Super, super helpful. Um, I, go- I don't know anything though. Yeah. Oh. I'll, I'll always caveat that with whatever I say these totally. days. No, no, I appreciate yeah. it. Those Thanks. are my off-the-cuff thoughts. <laughs> yes, I appreciate it. The uh, a question I'll close on is sort of a, a big question, but add some nuance to, to the controversy. In the last year, there's been sort of this... Um, so, you know, DHH basically has has, uh, has sort of been on the other side of this. The debate on do you raise money, do you not do you not raise money is sort of bootstrap versus, versus VC. There was, of course, the 80-hour work week uh, debate that keeps rearing its head. It feels like there's this sort of uh, real tension. Uh, add, add some nuance to this. Obviously, it's sort of it depends, but but what's going on there? Why is that such a greater tension? And, and two years from now, are we still having these same debates? Do they get worse? Have we reconciled? How do, you, how do you think about this? Who cares? Yeah. Just, just honestly, like, who cares? Like, just who cares? Like, this is why I'm actually mostly off Twitter. Mm. Unless I have something really, like, insightful to say, like, or that's, like, just I need to get out. Yeah. I have nothing to say. Because, like, who cares? Like, the more I read that stuff, the more I'm like, I don't care. There's times in my life where I worked super hard. There's times when I didn't. In my case, like I've ran a self-funded and a venture-funded yeah. business. Like, who cares? Like, it's like, you know, the bottom line is know what you're getting into. Yeah. And I think like the bigger point on all those debates, work hard, not work hard, venture, not venture. It's like, just know what you're getting into. And the world is full of way more opportunity than ever before around self-funding and bootstrapping or whatever. Yeah. And also on venture funding. And raising yeah. money. It's just like know what you're getting into. Sure, if you get into the treadmill, if you're if you're into call it a treadmill, but like if you're into the if you're if you think you should you want to raise money, then make sure you know what you're getting into. Yeah. For example, if I'm gonna go raise money for a business of mine, I'm gonna know that I need to raise money every 12 months. I also need to know that like it's not venture capital, it's risk capital. And it, it, you know, the people on the other side are invested in a number of things and they know that their hit rate is 10% or 20% or 5% or 1%, whatever it may be. Right. But it's not a hundred percent. And for me, this is the only thing I'm working on. So for me, it's a hundred percent. So knowing that I might not make it and the chances and everything is against me on making it, so to speak to the other side and the other side looks like an exit a billion dollar business, uh, IPO or something. I just know I'm getting into that and I'm okay with it if I'm getting into that. And I, I would advise everybody to know that even when they get into YC, they should know that yeah. this is the game you're getting into. Know the game you're playing in life. This is the game of business that you're getting into. And if you're going to self fund, know what that looks like, right? That's it. And it, it's just like, I really admire everybody that's speaking up on both sides. I think Twitter has made it so that we're just feeding our egos. Yeah. Instead, like, objectively speaking, just know what you're getting into. And if you need to read DHH's statements about it, go for it. But please, like, know that he's angry. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, I don't care what he says. He's angry. Yeah. I don't know why he's so angry. Yeah. I want to know what made him so angry, <laughs> but he is angry. He yeah. comes across as an angry person. And honestly, he has done more for software than almost anybody else, personally, yeah. with yeah. Ruby on Rails, I gotta yeah. say. And why is he so angry? Like, why is he so angry? Yeah. And he makes everyone else angry. And <laughs> they yeah. fight him. And like, yeah. it's like, it almost reminds me of, of, of a little more aggressive back in the day, Jason Calcanis. Yeah. He's not as angry anymore, no, it seemed like. He's at He's calmed down. Yeah. He's at peace, has a child, et cetera. Yeah. Like, whatever, right? Maybe two, I don't know. And like, wow. Yeah. But is still angry. And it's like, dude, like, why are you so angry? I, I, if I got on a podcast, I'd be like, yo, I don't care about your opinions are great. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. respect you madly yeah. for what you've built. But why are you so angry? Because like, you're angry. Yeah. You, well, no. well, he has a podcast and uh, there's a call out. You should invite he in and have a, have a great chat. I just uh, want to know why he's angry. It's going to be personal. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Heaton Shah. Uh, Heaton, any uh, any last plugs or, or words of wisdom? We said know know what you're getting into, but for people who want to learn more about FYI and what you're what you're up to right now, yeah, uh, we're at usefyi.com. Uh, sign up, check it out. Uh, I'm at at hn shah on Twitter, h n s h a h. But I don't really tweet as much as I used to last year. And lastly, I'm going to leave you with this, which is like, just remember, nobody knows what they're doing. Heat, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 